0: A group of migrants rescued by a Danish tanker in the Mediterranean have been allowed to land in Italy after more than 40 days at sea. The 27 people, including one pregnant woman, set off from Libya on the 2nd of August, Danish tanker, the Maersk Etienne picked them up shortly afterwards when their vessel started to sink, but the ship was denied permission to dock in any country for more than a month.
1: Welcome to the shoreline maritime risk podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship?
2: We would like to welcome our listeners to this, the third in the series of Shorelines Maritime Risk Podcasts, when we will be discussing the issue of international seaborne migration. This month, we have seen the unfortunate record set for the length of time that people have taken refuge on board a merchant ship, when 27 Libyan migrants were finally landed ashore in Malta after more than a month on board the Maersk Etienne. In cases such as these, the rescue is only part of the story. What operational, legal, and security issues might the ship's master and crew face once they have the migrants safely on board their vessel? The what next can be more complicated than the rescue itself. So the focus in the popular press has been on the Mediterranean Sea, where according to the UN Refugee Agency, some 40,000 people have attempted to cross from North Africa to Europe in 2020 alone. The size of this crisis is further compounded when we learn that 400 of these migrants are reported to have lost their lives when making this dangerous journey. Unfortunately, seaborne migration is a global humanitarian crisis for which there are no immediate solutions. The legal complexities, which involve the application of international conventions and multi jurisdictional and agency issues, do nothing to alleviate the ship's master's moral and legal obligation to respond to the plight of migrants when in distress at sea. After all, it's in the DNA of those who work at sea to save life at sea. And in so doing, they often expose themselves, their vessels and their employees to safety, legal, security and commercial issues that can take time and money to resolve. Shoreline has the pleasure of speaking to two leading industry experts on the subject of seaborne migration. It's our pleasure to welcome David Hammond, who is the CEO and founder of the Human Rights at Sea organisation, which is a not-for-profit advocacy group, which seeks to deliver social change on the Human Rights at Sea agenda through legal and international policy developments. We will also be speaking to Dr Victoria Mitchell. Victoria is part of Control Risks, dedicated maritime security team, providing global analytical coverage of maritime security issues. Welcome to both of you. And David, if I may turn to you first, perhaps you could give an overview of your background and the work of your organisation in this particular area of the law.
3: Uh, Tom, thanks very much indeed, and a pleasure to be uh, on the podcast. David Hammond, I'm the CEO and indeed the founder of Human Rights at Sea. We established and actually first came to light proposing our existence at the first London International Shipping Week in 2013, September 2013, but actually launched in April 2014. We're an advocacy organisation, as you've said, uh, not a welfare organisation, but we work very closely with all the welfare organisations and indeed have a very close working relationship across the sector. We're effectively seven years young, but at the moment, if you were to type those four words, Human Rights to see into any global search engine, then it comes up to our civil society platform. And I think it's important to highlight that we are a civil society platform. We're independent. We're not aligned to any one industry entity, and we aim to be independent and objective in the work that we do. I am myself, a former military seafarer, starting out as a navigating officer in the Royal Navy, but switched to the Royal Marine Commandos where I previously flew naval in naval aviation rotary before moving into the law as uh as council within the royal marine commandos but retired in 2012 and uh, now very much focus in my second career within the civil society and the charitable sector really as you highlighted there tom our role is to inform people and provide social change through law and policy change and just to just to round up before we hand over to um to Victoria, just for those listeners, it's interesting to note that we live in a rules based environment and a rules based world, which are actually going to come on and to discuss in terms of the humanitarian piece for the commercial sector. But we live in a world where we have labor rights, we have human rights, we have animal rights, disabled rights, women's rights. But it seems rather fantastic, does it not, that in 2013 if you had typed human rights at sea into any global search engine there was as a matter of fact no platform explicitly talking about the wider human rights piece so i'm very proud to lead our civil society organization and look very much forward to to working with shoreline and uh, also with controlled risks risks
2: david thank you for that introduction very good to hear about the the work that is done by your organization on behalf Um, of those at sea in terms of protecting or bringing to the attention the needs of human rights to be equal applied to all. If I can now turn to Victoria if you could give us a similar explanation of uh, your background and, and the work of control risks in this area of maritime law.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that, Tom. This is Victoria Mitchell here. I am an Associate Analyst at Control Risks, where I am part of a specialised team which focuses on international and transnational issues. I, together with other members of my team, we specialise on in the maritime sector, which is primarily looking at maritime security. But... Also in collaboration with colleagues across company, we look at wider issues which impact the maritime sector, including the subject which we'll be talking about today, the subject of migration. Together with co- colleagues from controls around the world, we monitor migration incidents and trends, and we see that an awareness of this is critical for operators. And we are able, with this intelligence and we're able to then advise operators of any potential impact for their operations. So it's a pleasure to be with you today.
2: Thank you, uh, Victoria, for that introduction. So if we now move on to the the discussion, as we've alluded to in in our introduction, the legal complexities around the issue of seaborne migration are many and varied. They concern themselves with international convention and regulation They're often multi-jurisdictional and agency-based. If I could ask you, David, really, uh, from a legal perspective, to give us the global overview of this myriad of different legal frameworks that uh, comes into play when we find uh, persons on board merchant vessels seeking refuge. So the legal framework,
3: I think, is uh, well worked, certainly from the legal uh, perspective and the maritime lawyers that may be listening to the podcast. What I'm going to do is break it down into to really bite-sized, plain English chunks. Really is that, and it goes to the founding principle that you've spoken about, Tom, that human rights apply at sea as they do on land. And the recent instances we've seen of migrant rescue and the problems that it's been raising, certainly in the commercial sector, does actually raise serious concerns from an international law perspective. You know, some people may say the issue is complex and requires understanding. But to start with, I would say that there are two counter forces that we're dealing with at the moment. On the one hand, there's the existence of the legally binding international law treaties that uh, protect and promote fundamental human rights. And when I, when I say fundamental human rights, I refer to the 30 articles of the 1948 Universal Declaration. On the other hand, there are various domestic national laws, both criminal and administrative, that may hinder the activities of rescue at sea and indeed disembarkation. So. Starting with the headlines from a human rights perspective, which you'd expect from our organisation. Firstly, is the fundamental and undeniable right to life. This is affirmed in various international law provisions. First and foremost, it's enshrined in Article 3 of the 1948 Universal Declaration. And it's further reiterated in Article 6 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So the right to life to persons under the age of 18 and the obligations of states to guarantee enjoyment of this right to the maximum extent possible are are specifically recognised in uh, Article 6 of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. So already we've spoken about the Universal Declaration, the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights and the Rights of the Child. And at the EU level, of course, we're looking specifically, I think, in this case, uh, or shortly in the the Mediterranean sense, the European Convention uh, of Human Rights and the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights both respectively provide for the right to life. In that nutshell, there's five areas of international law. Now, in terms of the context of search and rescue operations, there's also a clear international legal framework pertinent to rescue operations, precisely developed in support to the right of life. So the starting point there um, really is the 1982 UN Convention Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, that many people are familiar with, Um, and that explicitly provides the duty to render assistance to those in distress at sea by the master of the ship, as well as the duties of the coastal states, and that's Article 98. And the same rationale is indeed found in the 1979 Safety of Life at Sea Convention, otherwise known as SOLAS. Interestingly, the twen- the uh, letter, or the letter open letter from Amexa, so ICS, ITF, and ETF, in relation to the shipping industry call to ensure prompt and predictable disembarkation, the 22nd of September this year, specifically refers to SOLAS. That's Chapter 5 and and Regulation 34, which is safe navigation and avoidance of dangerous situations, but also 34-1, a master's discretion in decision-making should not be compromised. So just working through that, the Safety of Life at Sea convention in short obliges states to establish a maritime rescue coordination center and outlines the operation procedures to follow in the event of emergencies and during the search and rescue operations and another legal instrument that deals with that is the duty of providing assistance to any person in distress at sea is the 1979 convention on maritime search and rescue and more specifically actually chapter 2 2.1 And there it actually says, in short, parties to the convention shall, and so a positive affirmation, shall ensure that assistance be provided to any person in distress at the sea. Without going into too much more detail, we also have articles within the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees and beyond the refugee convention, the 1984 Convention Against Torture and Other Inhumane or Degrading Treatments and Punishments, um, which relates to Article 3 of the U- U- European Convention of Human Rights. So in, in a nutshell, bringing all of that together and taking a breath is a series of well-established international law conventions that require not as a may, but as a should and a must positive requirement for vessels to rescue at sea, certainly in terms of search and rescue. And that's well established in international law.
2: David, thank you for that brief but uh, very comprehensive explanation of the the myriad of laws and conventions that uh, that cover the issue of seaborne migration. Obviously, we're very focused on the issue of seaborne migration at this time when there is an uneasy feel about the earth, uh, the world, and there are a number of geopolitical issues that are coming into play, which has perhaps exacerbated the problem of migration on land and at sea. Uh, the popular press has been particularly focused on the issue of seaborne migration within the Mediterranean, and it probably serves as well now to, to look at this from a more practical perspective. I myself have a a seagoing background and um, obviously it's within a seafarer's DNA that if one hears a distress message one goes to the assistance of those in distress and and that includes people seeking refuge from wherever they may be fleeing. This of course rescues any part of the issue when you hear the distress uh, signal, it's how you look after people once you've rescued them from the sea and how you disembark them in a a safe place uh, for them to uh, assume life back on land. I think the case of the Maersk Etienne is particularly interesting in this regard and particularly informative, and it's an area in which I think you may have some insight, Victoria. So maybe we could hand over to you now to look at the the practical issues about seaborne migration, rescue, and and the issues involved in landing refugees at a safe port, et cetera. So I'll hand back to Victoria for a bit of analysis in that regard.
0: Thanks, Tom. And uh, also thanks, David, for that uh, wonderful outline. So... The Mercatien, as Tommy intimated, is certainly a case which highlights many of the practical complexities which arise when we try and put into practice the international legal obligations which David has outlined. To begin, though, I wanted to just take a step back and highlight a couple of points to place this in context. The first is that seaborne migration, whilst we are focusing on the Mediterranean context, is also, of course, an ongoing matter worldwide. Uh, There are many cases uh, beyond the Mediterranean where operators need to remain aware and go to the assistance of vessels consistent with the international legal obligations, which David has outlined. I also wanted within the Mediterranean to provide a little bit of uh, broader context. The Mersketian example follows two particular examples earlier this year where cargo vessels, the Marina and the Talia, faced short delays to their operations while awaiting a location to disembark migrants which they had rescued in the Mediterranean. So we can see that this is not a one-off case. Earlier again, in 2019, we have seen an instance, which is rare, of the embarkation of rescued migrants escalating to a security situation and i'm referring here tom to the hijack which occurred on the el hebrew one in that case in early 2019 a small group of over 100 a small group within a group of rescued migrants forced the vessel master to sail towards europe And a distress call was issued by the crew of the El Hebrew 1 requesting assistance, which was provided according to a Maltese Armed Forces press statement by a special ops team who boarded and secured the vessel uh, just beyond Maltese waters, so far as we understand. So, by way of those examples, I'm trying to outline that the Mersketien example is the latest in a series of instances. But in this particular case, it's a notable example of the diplomatic ramifications around the issue of migration. It began with the Danish flag tanker uh, undertaking its legal obligations concerning rescue and safety of life at sea, the obligations which David has outlined for us. But it becomes complex when we get to the disembarkation process. And I think that for our listeners, it's helpful if we walk through the sequence of events, as it were. So we have a Danish flag tanker, the Maerskettien, which in early August responded to a request from Maltese authorities to proceed to assist a small boat in distress. The Maerskettien did and it embarked 27 migrants. It then proceeded towards Malta, but was not permitted to begin disembarkation there. We see from press reports that diplomatic wrangling begins. We see the Maltese Prime Minister, as reported to have stated that the flag state, Denmark, should undertake responsibility for the migrants on board its flag vessel. Another consideration which arose was that it could be the country in whose waters the rescue is reported to have occurred, that's Tunisia, but we don't see agreement on this being achieved either. So the consequence of this was that the migrants remained on board the tanker for a period of 38 days before being transferred to an NGO vessel and permitted to disembark in Italy. What we can understand from this is that beyond the immediate obligations for rescue and to comply with obligations to ensure safety of life at sea, there is complex diplomatic diplomatic impacts which are ongoing and they directly impact upon the operations of commercial vessels who are involved in search and rescue. And I just wanted, Tom, to bring up a number of things that I think this recent case highlights and that operators need to continue to maintain their awareness of. And this is in terms of both operational, financial security and also reputational impacts. The clear points around Uh, operational financial impacts are, for example, that the Maersk ETM was off higher with impacts, therefore, for operations and financial impacts. There are, as I've outlined in the broader context, risks accrue from a security perspective, with the extreme example being that of the LHB1. And when we look at reputational impacts, we can look at how operators also need to be aware that Should they avoid rescuing migrants, it may not only be in violation of legal obligations, but can also have damaging media attention with constant impacts for their reputation. So in addition to operator awareness, there's a clear need to equip crew as best as possible with the skills and knowledge around this issue. And I think I'll leave it there. Leave it there, Tom.
2: No, thank you, Victoria. Yes, fascinating. And when we look into not just the Maersk Etienne case, but as you mentioned, the I think you should prefer to the El Hiblu 1 case, where the innocent master and crew have acted in good faith to rescue those in peril at sea, as it were, and to find themselves with a perhaps larger problem once they embark the refugees on board their vessel, creating a significant security risk to the master himself and his crew. And as you as you pointed out, I guess this issue really does concern three distinct phases. One is the, the preservation of life at sea, the rescue attempt. The next is how you uh, care for and looked after uh, the people on board your ship, once you've rescued them and you safeguard their interests, their security, their safety, whilst also maintaining your obligation to your crew to ensure their safety and security. And then the third phase, of course, as we've discussed, is, is how we land these refugees ashore in a, in a safe port of, of refuge. And of course, as you've said, that has a, a multitude of different facets that go alongside it from a, a commercial perspective. safety and security perspective an operational perspective and at a higher level a a diplomacy and a governmental perspective where you need that uh, government intervention at times to appeal to the the governmental interests in the port in which you're trying to land the refugees to uh, allow them to, to take them into their country all of which of course is further complicated with the current global pandemic situation where When you innocently rescue people, you don't know the the medical history and or status of those people you're taking into your care. And I'm guessing that there has to be another layer of complication when it comes to perhaps uh, a degree of quarantining or isolating on board a ship to ensure that if any of the refugees you have taken on board are um, carrying the COVID-19 virus. Something else that we should perhaps look at a little further. But obviously education, information and advice is is key to to this particular area of concern for those uh, operating vessels at sea. And um, I I believe your organisation, David, has done some and continues to do good work in this area. So perhaps we should hand over to you to explain to our listeners what information is readily available in the public domain that you have um, authored or supported to provide this type of advice to burner operators master and crew so back to you david thank you thank you tom
3: i think it's probably worth just pointing out a bit of terminology here when we're talking about refugees and migrants They're actually two distinct groups, and and I I think it's uh, key that we understand the background for two, both. So in short, refugees are persons fleeing armed conflict or persecution. At the end of 2015, there were around about 21.3 million of them worldwide, according to UNHCR. And and their situation, as uh, UNHCR would say, is often so perilous and intolerable that they cross national borders to seek safety in nearby countries and therefore become internationally recognised as refugees with access to assistance from states and UN agencies. And they're recognised precisely because it's too dangerous for them to return home and they need sanctuary elsewhere. If you deny them asylum as a refugee, that may have potentially deadly consequences. When we're looking at the Mediterranean, we're looking at the Mersketien case, we're looking at migrants, and they are individuals who choose to move not because of a direct threat, of persecution or death, but to improve lives by finding work, in some cases for education, family reunions and other reasons. But unlike refugees who cannot return safely at home, migrants themselves don't face such an impediment. So if they choose to return home, they will continue to receive the same protections and support from the government. So I think it's just important to know what people you've got on board and actually what their backgrounds are between refugees and migrants. In terms of work that we've done, we've issued and continue to issue freely available publications via our website and MD case studies as well as educational materials. There's a a smorgasbord of available information, including for particularly up to and including board level short videos that can be equally watched by seafarers as well as insurers as well as academics as well as board members, explaining in real basic terms what human rights are, the difference between human and labour rights, and where business uh, fits in with the human rights model. And part of one of those publications that uh, might be uh, useful for those listeners who are interested is actually when we're looking at the Mercedian case and and examples of search and rescue operations was actually a document called the Voluntary Code of Conduct. We wrote in February 2017 the, the first ever and it was the first ever Mediterranean Code of Conduct and this was in relation to search and rescue and it was also endorsed by at the the, the time, the International Maritime Rescue Federation, as well as a coalition of of NGOs and welfare organisations. In terms of education, there, there were really four areas of defended rights, which are absolutely key for commercial operators to understand if they are going to have a humanitarian aspect to their work. So the first, of course, as we've already mentioned, is the right to life. That is fundamental we don't cross that line of saying we might rescue we might not rescue obviously we take into consideration the the master's authority and the master's discretion as for solas as i've said but specifically we are supporting the right to life the right to dignity with a subsequent standard of living and the freedom from cruel Uh, torture, cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment or punishment, which comes to that right of life, which we are all entitled to. The second piece that I wanted to frame was the right to receive humanitarian assistance. And that's concurrent to the right to life with, with dignity. And that's at the very least implied by the right to life and the 51 Refugee Convention and Universal Declaration as well. The right to protection and security is based on the core provisions of international law, this is the third right I want uh, the listeners to be aware, and that underpins the universal rule of law and political resolutions supporting mandates of the UN and the, uh, the European Union. And finally, the right to seek asylum or sanctuary, and I just touched on that, in terms of refugees, on and and the issue about refugees not being able to return without a, a perilous or uh, an issue around whether or not they they may live or die back in their their home country from where they have left, and now of course that comes under the 51 uh, Refugee Convention. So those four areas I think are are absolutely key. But in terms of other educational materials, I think it's also. Um, really important from the work and the piece that Victoria was highlighting, is the issue of deprivation of liberty at sea. With EU funding the in June 2015, uh, we issued, and it's available online, it's still applicable, a deprivation of liberty guidance for shipmasters, crew, and also privately contracted armed security personnel. Indeed, the follow-up to that will be shortly published early next month so do watch out for that but in short the guidance is there it is free to download and it's based on two underlying principles for the shipmaster first that human rights apply at sea as they do on land and second that de- deprivation of liberty is an exceptional in the words exceptional measure as it interferes with the general right of liberty. So when we're looking at right to liberty under the um, uh, European Convention on Human Rights, for example, that's Article 5, the right to liberty and security. And this is very pertinent to operators. And I'm not going to do go it to too much detail, but basically the fundamental rules, there's two of them. Firstly, the authorization by the shipmaster and crew must pre-exist, and its requirements must be fully met at the beginning and during the entire period of depriving an individual or individuals of liberty. So shipmasters, crew and PCASP can only undertake such acts relating to deprivation of liberty when they are unequivocally authorised to do so by deprivation of liberty law, and where those requirements are set forth in their respective commercial authorizations at the beginning and the end of that that period. So bringing people on board, considering that they may be a threat, depriving their liberty to protect the safety and security of the crew. So the second fundamental rule is that it must be lawful and it must comply with internationally recognized human rights law. So shipmasters and crew and PCAS, in a nutshell, must respect and apply applicable domestic as well as international law governing uh, deprivation of liberty on board a vessel. And that is most notably looking and referring to the fundamental principles of human rights law. So the Universal Declaration 1948. There is a lot more, but the nutshell is it's all there for the listeners to download. And finally, yes, you are absolutely right, Tom, we do have a, a raft of other materials. And indeed, uh, the irony is, particularly, again, we talked about the merce case, is that uh, crew training, we uh, had foreseen this in 2016, and with Marlin's had put together an online remote learning platform tool for migrant rescue, which supports and indeed refers to the UNHCR and International Chamber of Shipping's guidance on rescue at sea. So there is a smorgasbord. It's free to download, and and we give it all away.
2: David, thank you for that, and uh, thank you for uh, providing clarification on the different definitions of refugee and migrant, which are very important and fundamental to this area of discussion and also thank you for uh, the guidance you provided in terms of where our listeners can look for additional information advice learning materials around this very complicated subject it would be remiss not to give uh, victoria the opportunity just to speak about the the services that uh, control risks can provide to ship owners when they find themselves in one of these difficult situations. And so I'd just like to hand back briefly to Victoria just to comment on the, the depth of resource Control Risk has to assist our, our shipper and our clients with uh, this type of issue.
0: Thanks, Tom. Control Risk Maritime Team, as we've uh, identified, is a specialised team focused on maritime security and mar- issues affecting the maritime sector. And that strong intelligence forms the basis of a number of the services the Maritime team can offer, including a subscription platform and also bespoke services such as assessments. And we are able to offer crew briefings. I'd like to highlight also that we are able to work collaboratively with our analysts based all around the world. And this is something which is is very much important as migration is an issue of global concern. Thanks, Tom
2: okay david victoria it's been an absolute pleasure and very illuminating from my perspective i'm sure it will be the same for shorelines listeners to these this very informative series of maritime risk podcasts i wish you well in all you do and once again thank you for the time you've taken to impart your very important knowledge to all of the listeners to the shoreline podcast thank you very much
1: We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.